0: Okay, we're going to turn now to God's Word Um, in Ephesians chapter 5. We're actually going to start in verse 19, um, a little before most of the section that we're looking at, and uh, this is uh, God's Word to you because He loves you. Do not get drunk with wine, that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord uh, with your, your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband he is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, the body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit Let's pray together. Our oh Lord, we thank you for the great grace that you have spoken to us. That though you are invisible, though we can't see you, though you are almighty, we can't comprehend you. You have still revealed yourself to us in your word. Yet we need hearts that are soft and open to hear your word, that it may shape us and form us and feed us and wash us. So we ask uh, that you would send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. I pray that uh, you would help uh, me as I speak to your people, for you know that my sins are many. I pray that you would forgive them and wash me That uh, by your Spirit. Uh, you would speak to the hearts and to the lives who are sitting here. Take your perfect and holy word through a flawed and sinful teacher and, um, and feed and wash your people. We ask this in the name of Jesus, our Savior, amen. So um, we are in a series, a three-part series, this is part three, of a marriage series of a Christian worldview of marriage. What does um, the Bible as a whole kind of tell us about marriage? One of the ways that you can ask that question about anything, of what does the Bible say about, about marriage? Last year we did parenting, Is you go through this story that Chris was just talking about, about Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. These are the, the, the four parts of the story of the Bible. And you can look at each one of those parts and say, what does is, what is creation to tell us about marriage? We looked at that two weeks ago. Last week, we looked at what is the fall? What is the fact that, that humanity is sinful? What does that teach us about marriage? And, and last week, uh, we painted a fairly disturbing picture of um, what happens when you get two people who are petty and Selfish and you stick them in a house together and the things that they do to, to each other um, and so much so that uh, Many people in our culture are very, very cynical about marriage and uh, not even sure they want to get married We're not even sure that it's possible for a marriage to last for a lifetime And uh, so that's because uh, the Bible is very honest about um, how broken marriage is, how broken we are, the brokenness that we bring into marriage And uh, so today though, I want to talk about um, what hope is there uh, for marriage. Um, you know, The Bible tells us pr- uh, both how awful marriage, how lonely marriage can be, but also the main storyline of the Bible is that it is a story about God rescuing uh, lost people, and that means it's a story about God rescuing lost marriages, and uh, the way that God does that is, uh, is through sending a Savior. The hope of the Bible is not that we're going to uh, pull our life together and that we're going to be better people and, uh, and maybe we can attain to God's level, but that God sent a Savior down to us in our lost life and uh, who draws us and, and mends our wounds and washes us and feeds us and gives us and makes us full again so that there's hope for our marriages. And um, and so what that means is that the gospel, what the gospel is, 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 is the, the, the events that God did in Jesus, where God became a man and uh, in Jesus, and uh, Jesus lived the life that we should have lived, he died the death that we should have died, and then he conquered death in the resurrection, now he's seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. That story, that simple little story, the Bible says is the key to a healthy marriage. That story of the gospel is the key uh, to a marriage. So what I'm going to give you today is we look at the hope for, you know, how do our marriages that can be so tragic, so so lonely, so much hurt, uh, so selfish. I don't have seven steps to a healthy marriage. I don't have that for you. Uh, seven steps can be helpful sometimes. Uh, I don't have communication techniques for you. Um, they will, they're good to learn. I don't have a problem with learning, uh, but they don't go deep enough. Seven steps don't go down into the heart, into the core of what makes our marriages so difficult, and the gospel does. God himself and Jesus Christ goes down uh, to the very heart, the sinful heart that we are bringing into marriage and deals with that. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at this, probably the most famous passage in the Bible on marriage, Ephesians chapter 5, which uh, is just a masterpiece. And uh, full of mystery, deeply profound. And let it um take its way into our marriages and into our hearts. And what I want to do is I want to highlight three ways that the gospel, the story of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection transforms our marriages. And these are the three things I want to say. It's first, that the gospel is the power of marriage. The power, it is the enabling power that a marriage needs uh, to be loving and to be sacrificial. Second, the gospel is also the meaning of marriage. It actually gives a foundation for what, what is a marriage for, what's it all about, what's it supposed to be doing, the gospel tells us. And lastly, the gospel is the fulfillment of marriage. It is the thing that marriage is pointing to. It's the fulfillment of marriage. And So my hope as we uh, look at this is something very practical as marriage. Uh, my hope is actually that it points us beyond marriage and to Jesus. Because that's the whole point of marriage, is, is to be something that leads us into worship of our Savior. So um, my prayer is that God will do that uh, with us through his word today. So first, the gospel is the power of marriage. And uh, for the text that I read to you this morning, I, I, I tagged on a little part at the beginning, starting in verse 9, which um, may not seem relevant to, to, to marriage, but this is what it says, or verse 19, sorry, in chapter 5. Um, and it says, Paul says this, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. And actually, in the book of Ephesians, that little line is kind of a climactic line that the last five chapters have been building up to. This is what your new life in Christ is, be filled with the Spirit. Addressing one another in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. When we're filled with the Spirit, and we have this kind of Music that's just coming out of our hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says this line submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What Paul says is um, he begins before he enters into a discussion about marriage and about uh, husbands and wives and how they interact with each other. He lays the foundation by saying that the only way that you can really be who God's called you to be in marriage is by being filled with the Spirit. And what that will um, look like, that, that being filled with the Spirit is the power of God living in you. And when the power of God living in you, what it will look like is it will look like, uh, su- he says this to all Christians, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. And Tim Keller uh, describes what it means to submit to one another in, in this. He says, it is the loss of pride and self-will that leads a person to humbly serve the other. It is the loss of pride and self-will that leads a person to humbly serve another. And so what we need um, uh, to understand for a foundation of marriage is this kind of loss of pride, loss of self-will, which, um, and, and to humbly serve people, which, you know, all three of these things are things that our culture um, does not celebrate. These are three qualities that our culture doesn't celebrate. I mean, to lose your pride, I mean, if anything, our culture says you should hold on to your pride and your self-will and your ambition and your goals. You should pursue those things. And then to serve Another You know, I think as Christians, that kind of language of serving people is something that we kind of, you know, that's a part of our culture, that we, serving people is a good thing, but I, when Shannon and I were getting married, uh, I remember it, it was our rehearsal dinner and Trevor, most of you know Trevor, was uh, one of my groomsmen, and he was up giving a toast, and, and he was telling a story about how in in, uh, in college he'd broken his leg, and we lived in the same house together, and, and Shannon, when he broke broken his leg, Shannon brought him some 7-Up and little bendy straws so that, you know, you didn't have to lean forward to drink his donut. And so he was telling his story, and it was funny, and he said, you know, uh, I just want to say that is such a servant, you know. And there were these other gals over there, and they said, servant? What's this guy talking about? Is that supposed to be a good thing, that she's a servant? Wow, real nice. And of course he was he was squandering her by saying she was a servant, because Christ is a servant. And yet, that's, our, our culture doesn't celebrate that. And yet what Paul is saying is that this is the heart, this is the attitude that we need to bring into a marriage if, uh, if it has any hope, it is a loss of our pride and our self-will that causes us to humbly serve one another. And so um, the question is, if this is so unnatural for us, it is so unnatural for us to be selfless, uh, to lose our pride to serve people, what is the hope? Where could where that possibly uh, come from? And I think the key to it comes here in verse 21, where he says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. How is it possible that you begin to become a self-sacrificing kind of person? It's a reverence for Christ. Actually, that word for reverence, the word phobos, which is where we get the word phobia, fear, out of the fear of Christ. Is that what Jesus has done for us, that God has become a man, he's come and dwelt among us, he's rescued us, he's sought us out, that, that love is so fierce, it's so powerful, it's so unpredictable that it creates a sense of fear and awe, a wonder in us, a fearful joy that has shaken us to the core. And what Paul says is, is to, end, to be, and your marriage to be the marriage that God intends it to be, the gospel, that message of what Jesus done has to have shaken you to the core and created that fearful joy in you. The only thing that could possibly cause you to give up your pride and your self will so that you could humbly serve each other. And so um, it is the gospel. And the reason why the gospel is so powerful in a marriage is because on the one hand, it tells us how to understand ourselves, and on the other hand, it tells us how to understand our spouse. So first, the gospel tells us how to understand ourselves. And there's a, there's a guy, uh, Walt Wengren, who's uh, he's written a really good book on marriage called As For Me and My House. And he has a chapter on forgiveness where he says, you know, if you're, uh, if you're in a marriage together, you're both sinners, you're going to hurt one another. Forgiveness is... is Essential, if you're going to have a marriage that's going to sustain itself over the years, over a lifetime. Uh, so forgiveness is vital. And this is what he says, though, about how you can forgive your spouse. In order to forgive your spouse and so heal the broken relationship, first forget your spouse. First forget your spouse. The primary relationship is between you and God. What happens there, what happens in your relationship with God will affect what happens in your household. First, it is you and God alone. And uh, what he's actually saying is that if we come into a marriage as deeply needy people, and we expect that in our marriage, my marriage is going to give me meaning, my marriage is going to give me value, my marriage is going to give me fulfillment, you are going to go into your marriage just sucking, sucking dry, which your marriage needs you to pour into. And uh, your, your spouse can't, I can't handle your sucking. <laughs> if you're that needy, and so we actually have to go into our marriage um, charged with spiritual resources, overflowing with spiritual the spiritual resources we need. Uh, to sacrificially give ourselves to our spouses. And he says the way you do that is by going to God first. And he says when you do that, when you go to God first, what you're going to find out is that you're very sinful, and, you're, and then Jesus had to die on the cross for you so that God's wrath wouldn't fall on you, and yet Jesus, it, through Christ, you're forgiven, you're embraced freely by God. You, uh, you're not treated how you deserve, you're, you're, tr- you're treated according to God's steadfast love to you. And what he says, he has this great line, he says when that's happened, When you realize, when you understand yourself that way, coming into a marriage, he says, in Jesus Christ, you do possess the infinite love which you need for marriage. In Jesus Christ, you do possess the infinite love which you need for marriage. And so you cannot be selfless and humble in a servant unless you realize that Jesus has been selfless and humble in a servant for you first. He's already done that for you. You've already received that. And so, um, you need to be enter into marriage as one already infinitely loved by Christ. So that's how the gospel tells us about ourselves. I mean, that's why we need the gospel. See, you see, that's not seven steps. That's something down at the core of your identity. It's talking about your identity and who you are. It's not seven steps to better marriage. It's at the core of who you are. But, uh, but also, the gospel doesn't just t- tell you how to understand yourself. The gospel tells you how to understand your spouse also, which is... Is, is huge as well, you know, one of the things we, shan- Shannon said she didn't mind if I shared this with you, but you know, one of the things that we found in, in our marriage, uh, it's been more challenging for Shannon to say to me that she's sorry for something, uh, that she's done wrong. And I, I think part of the reason for that is I think God's called me as the head of the household and the leader in my house that I should be the one leading and repenting and confessing and, and apologizing. So that's part of, of my leadership in the home. Um, but one of the things that happens, that means when she comes and she does apologize to me, and I can see that it is a tremendous act of the will. She says, I'm sorry that I did that. And um, you know, sometimes I'll be like, what, what are you so sorry for? What, what did you do? <laughs> <laughs> can you tell me? What exactly was the thing that was so wrong with yeah. And she's like, uh, don't, don't do that. But one of the things that, that's really crucial, when she does that, and I can see that you know her heart's kind of half in it. She's not sure. She's half knows it's right, and half this is very uncomfortable for me. One of the things that's essential I don't do is say, you don't really mean it. I want you to come back where you really mean it 100%. Because if I understand her according to the gospel, then I know she's a sinner. And I know that, that Christ has died for her and washed her and that he has given her the spirit and she is in progress. Uh, God is transforming her from sin into being like Jesus. And what she's, she's done is a tremendous act of courage to, to reject her sinful life and saying, I want to humble myself and let go of my pride. And if I say to her, you didn't mean it. I'm not seeing her according to the gospel. When I see her according to the gospel, that Christ is at work in her. Then I, I embrace the side that says, what an act of the will that she just did that. And, and, I, and I say, I forgive you. And, and I'm going to overlook the other half of it. I'm going to overlook the, the half that does, still doesn't want to do that. And so, what the gospel does is it both tell, uh, uh, teaches us how to understand ourselves, but it also teaches us how to understand our spouse on a deep identity level. And it's only when the, that, the gospel has kind of shaken us, it's, it's, it's created a fear and a reverence and a awe and a wonder in us that we bring into our marriage. Then, we can understand the second thing that Ephesians highlights about the gospel of marriage. It's not just that the gospel is the power of marriage, but that the second, that the gospel is the very meaning of marriage. It is the very thing that marriage is all about and um, and what's so profound about this passage, is it tells us that God invented marriage to be a flesh and blood picture of the gospel and what God has done for us in Christ. and uh, We'll come back to this a little later, but first you see this in verse 31 there. Therefore, he quotes Genesis 2 when God invents marriage. We looked at this uh, a couple weeks ago. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And he says this amazing line. He's talking about marriage, and he says, this mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Um, what, what Paul is saying is that the deep mystery of marriage, what happens when God is bringing a man and woman together, he's joining them together to live a life, he's saying, I'm, I'm giving the world a picture of the deepest reality in the universe, of the love of Christ for his people. I'm giving you a picture. It's that the marriage is the very meaning of marriage. And what that means is that being married is about becoming like Jesus. We're showing the world who Jesus is. And it looks different for a man and a woman in a marriage to show the world what Jesus looks like. So, first of all, the first thing this passage says um, about how we do that is it says, first of all, that wives become like Jesus through submitting, through submitting to their husbands. Wives become like Jesus through submitting to their husbands. Now, um, I, I know that for some of you, even that word uh, is like nails on a chalkboard. Um, I, actually, it, it, not just for gals. I know that's true for many men here as well. I know as, uh, when I uh, first became a Christian, often reading through the Bible, that this really was one of the passages. Uh, what Paul says here in verse 22, wives, uh, submit to your own husbands. You know, I, I should just make one comment about that verse. Um, part of the reason I include verse 21 in, 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 uh, in the passage that I'm reading is that, that in verse 22, the word submit does, actually doesn't appear there in the Greek. Literally, verse 21 says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, wives to your own husbands. So it's kind of a subset, and what wives are called to do is something that we're all called to do as Christians. Um, and, uh, and, but I know that for, that for me, when I first came to this passage, this is, this is one of the verses that I often felt like I wish wasn't in the Bible. And um, But I've to, come to see um, through our marriage and through talking this, through this with Shannon as we work through it on um, the goodness of this passage and the love of God in this passage. And, you know, actually just this week I, I was doing uh, marriage counseling with uh, Johnny and Janelle back there. And, uh, and we're reading a book that was kind of doing an exposition of this passage. And, um, and Janelle was saying, you know, one of the things that struck me reading through all this is that, um, you know, so many people kind of bristle at this calling for wives to submit to their husband—it seems like um, such uh, lowering them, and they're—they're they're having to give up so much uh, to submit to their husbands. But she said, "Look, the husbands have to give up even more. Look, their husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. He—he he loved the church by dying on the cross. They're gonna—they're uh, gonna be much lower than the wives are. And—and um, and, um, but the other thing to understand about it is not just that there's sacrificial calling both for a husband, for a wife, and for a husband." But also, there's this interesting, um, in verse 23, how, how it says, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Um, that that uh, Paul is using this analogy that in the way that the church submits to Christ, the wife should submit to her husband, which, which sounds astounding, but there's, there, follow me here for a minute. In 1 first, first Corinthians 11, there's a very similar verse to this, and this is what it says. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, The head of a wife is her husband, and this last one, and the head of Christ is God. And what that means, what is he talking about there? Um, Christians throughout history have said that God is three persons in one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they've insisted that all three of these persons are equal in power and glory. And yet within that uh, three persons in one, within God himself, Jesus submits to the Father. It is a divine attribute. It is a quality of God to submit. It is a characteristic of God. It is something that Jesus does. And so in the calling for wives to submit to their husbands, it's not, um, hey... You know you're a second-class citizen you're worth less or something it's nothing even close to that he's saying you have a, a privileged calling to be like Jesus in this regard because this is what Jesus did and of course Jesus' uh, biggest act of submission was going to the cross his most significant work that he did on earth was an act of submission and God has honored him and seated him at this, the right hand of glory because of that act of submission so in, in, in calling life to submit He's saying, your calling is to be like Jesus in this regard in a marriage. Now, what does submission look like? What, what does that look like in a marriage? Um, well, you know, this is a complicated discussion. Um, I'm, I'm going to do the best I can here <laughs> as a man. Maybe she Shannon come up uh, She can. Uh, but the, um, uh, let me just say, in my experience, there's kind of a macro submission and there's micro submission. What I mean by macro submission is I think that periodically in your life there are going to come times in a family where you are making big decisions about your family and your future and, and where you're going uh, and you're going to have to make some, you know, where do you live, what job you going to take, what church do you go to, um, how many children are you going to have, and they're very big questions that you're going to be in dialogue with, uh, with your spouse about. And there may come times where you've both prayed through things, you've heard each other out, and you've talked through things, and you come to different conclusions and say, um, I, I think husband says I think we should do this, wife says I think we should do this. And at that point, um, you have to do something. And the fact is, the Bible says, that as a man, as, as the head of the house, what that means uh, is he's responsible for his family. In some regards, a man is going to have to give an account to God for the state of the family. And so God says that, that it's a calling of a wife to submit to a husband uh, in, in those big questions because you have to do something. You have to go with someone. And it's a calling of a wife. And I'll tell you this. If you're a wife, and you, this, I think this, is, this may be very troubling for you, what do I do in that moment? And uh, I'll tell you that these moments may be some of the most significant decisions that you make in your life where you're going to trust God And you're going to ask God to say to him, okay, I'm going to trust your word, but I want you to prove to me your goodness in it. And in many regards, I've had had, uh, women who've who've been through an experience like this, and they've submitted to their husbands, and they found uh, that God proved himself to be good to them. And and I think that, that there is an element that Jesus shows us that if we're being like... All is to be like jesus and that, that, that may be costly sometimes that may be a giving up of our pride and our um, our self-will to serve but just to know that in that you're being like Jesus okay but the other hand of that is that that, that happens periodically and let me just say that if um uh, if you're if that is a regular conversation where a husband is saying what do you need to submit you need to submit to me. That's probably a sign of an unhealthy marriage. There's not the prayerful uh, interaction that's going on where you're talking through things together and trying to be on the same page and work through things are probably not going on. But on the other side to submission is, uh, is there's also a micro-submission. And um, you know, Shannon's kind of uh, talked to me a little bit about this where she says, you know, what does submission look like in my kind of week-to-week life? And she says that it's mostly a kind of heart stance towards my husband you know, towards me, and you know, she says, it's for a wife when your husband's talking. What is your spirit towards what he's saying? Are you kind of criticizing everything he's saying? Are you wanting to believe in him? Do you want to be behind him? Does he have ideas? You know, when, you're, when your family you know, has an idea to do things, you kind of say, no, I have a better idea. I have a better way to do this. And I'll tell you, because you probably do. You probably do have better ideas. I mean, um, in, in many cases, Uh, In many marriages, uh, wives are are much more capable than their husbands, and uh, they're much more organized. Um, They think through many more things than their husbands do, and they should be talking through and interacting, but you have to be careful that you have an opportunity to let him lead. And if you're always having a better idea than him, always shutting down his ideas, um, you're not encouraging him to be the leader in his family. And so Shannon says oftentimes even her thoughts, her thought processes towards her husband. That this is what submission looks like, so I'm, I'm kind of passing this along um, through her. And that this is what submission looks like. But the question is, I'm, I'm going to spend a lot of time on the second point, so just prepare yourselves for that. Uh, I'm only on the wives here. I got husbands are even longer. Okay, so um, so the um, but the question is, how is that possible? How do I submit to my husband on a big decision we have to make? The or submit to my husband, on on, even these small things, and and follow his leadership because, you know, the fact is your husband is a sinner. And not only is is he going to let you down, not only is he going to make poor decisions, but often he is going to fail you miserably. And the Bible doesn't say submit to your husband when he's perfect. It says uh, submit to your husband. How is it possible um, to do that? Well, um, this verse has a very strange... I mean, if you think, "wives submit to your husbands is a strange statement. let I me. Mean, it gets even stranger. Listen to this. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. As to the Lord. Look at him as if he's like Jesus. And you say, how submit to my husband? This guy is nowhere near what Jesus is like. And I'm supposed to um, follow him and be obedient to him like I would unto Jesus. Well, I, I think... This is, the only way to understand this is in light of the gospel. Because what the gospel says is the way that God sees your husband is he is clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. Even though he sins every day, God sees him as clean and righteous in his sight. And, And what God does is he says he treats him as Jesus so that he will become like Jesus. You treat him as Jesus and then he will become like Jesus. And I think that's what part of what the calling here is for a wife is that is you are not treating him who he is right now; you are treating him like he will who he will become. And when you treat him that way, he will become that leader. He will become worthy of your submission. And this is this is a great mystery. But I, I think this is a calling of, for a wife of how to, how to, you know how to be like Jesus in marriage. Now, if you're a husband and you're sitting here listening to this, I, I hope this makes you tremble that God would actually call a woman um, to come into your house, into your family, and to honor you in that that way. I, I, I hope that would make you tremble. I hope you would never take advantage and try to use this as a way to control your wife or to take advantage of her because uh, these are commandments to her. They're not to you. Because the commandments to you are coming, and uh, And I'll tell you, that um, you have plenty to think about in God's commandments to you. You'll notice that uh, uh, the paragraph that's coming from men is much longer. And so uh, you're never going to be in a place where you have your paragraph down, so now you're ready to move on to help your wife get on with her, her paragraph. Okay, So uh, so I hope we tremble as we hear that this is our, our calling for our wives. But the, the second way that in a marriage is supposed to show the gospel is that husband, not just that wives become like Jesus through submitting, But wives become, or sorry, husbands become like Jesus through loving their wives. Through loving um, their wives. And um, you see that here, this amazing verse, verse 25, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And the question that we as husbands have to ask is how has Christ loved the church? I'm going to give you a few things. Uh, First of all, Christ has taken responsibility for his church. And, you know, it's an amazing thing that Jesus lived a perfect life. He did not deserve to go to the cross. It was our flaws, our sins, and instead of Jesus coming and laying on us all our sins and saying, you have done all these things, all these terrible things, and now you should pay for them, Jesus doesn't do that. What does he do? He takes responsibility. He says, that's my bride. And even though she's done those wrong things, I'm gonna take responsibility for it. And it doesn't look like throwing the sins back in our face. Does Jesus throw our sins back in our face? No, he he takes the consequences for them upon himself. And that's part of the calling for a husband is the head of our households, is is that shapes us. That's what Jesus has done for us. That's what we're called to do for our families, is to not um, shift the blame, but to take responsibility. But second, um, And and this isn't in this passage, but I also think one of the things that Jesus does for His church, the way Jesus loves His church, is through listening to her. You know, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has this great quote in his book Life Together. He says Christians have forgotten that the ministry of listening has been committed to them by Him, who is Himself the great listener, and and whose work they share. And uh, what that means, what he's saying is that when Jesus is constantly doing, Jesus is constantly listening to the needs of the church. You know, there's a billion Christians in the world, and he's constantly listening to them. And you know, your prayers, you know, they don't—they're—they're they're emotional. They don't make sense. <laughs> and uh, and he listens, and he takes them deadly seriously. And and uh, well, that's one of the things that's uh, calling for a husband to love wife is the way Christ has loved the church, is simply to listen. And oftentimes, that's one of the things our wives are asking. And look at what Christ does for us as he listens to our prayers. But not just to listen, but it also says in this passage, husbands love their wives and how they speak. The words of a husband are terribly powerful. And um, uh, verse 26 is an amazing verse. Look, look at what this says. Um, says again, uh, so that Jesus might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the words, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Jesus speaks to his church and she becomes more beautiful. Jesus, with his words, he bestows beauty on his church. And one of the ways that, as husbands, we take responsibility for our our wives and for our family is that their beauty is our responsibility. And so uh, the way we speak to them, so the expectation is, you know, um, that as we spend our life with our wives, as we speak to them, um, our love for them, as we speak to them kindly and gently, they will become more and more beautiful. They will become more and more the apple of our eye by the words that we speak to them. And that's exactly what Jesus does to us Look, Every week we come as his bride and he speaks to us and he washes us and he changes us and he removes our blemishes. And, um, and so, this is the gospel. See, the, the world says, if you're beautiful, if you're lovely, I will love you. The world says, if, you, if you're lovely, I will love you. But the gospel says, I will love you first, and then you will become lovely. Love bestows loveliness on the one who is loved. And our words bestow loveliness on our wives, and they become more beautiful as we speak to them. And that's what the gospel says. It inverts everything. But lastly, I think... How do husbands love their wives? Is through serving. And you see this here, uh, verse 29, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Um, being the head of a family does not mean that a husband is waited on, uh, that he's the boss, he's the, the one Uh, has everyone waiting on him. Um, Because what does Jesus say? Jesus says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And so uh, the the model in the Bible is servant leadership. That um, there's a reversal, because Jesus, as the king of the world, what does he do? He does not come and put himself above people, he puts himself below people. And that's the the way that it happens in the family, is that as the head we put ourselves below and we serve. And uh, there's a great um, quote by Martin Luther where he says that um, God and all his angels smile on a husband who uh, who changes diapers. And uh, when a husband is changing diapers, and and this is what he says, what then does Christian faith say, say to this? It opens its eyes, it looks upon all these insignificant, distasteful, and despised duties in the spirit and is aware that they are all adorned with divine approval, as with the costliest gold and jewels, he says that when a husband is using his body to serve his wife in a home, doing things, um, that God looks on this like costly jewels. It's so; it is so valuable. It's an inver- it's completely <clears throat> inverted. And this is the calling. Is is that what the gospel does? Is it teaches us? That uh, the king of the world came and he lowered himself, and so wives are lowering themselves by submitting. Husbands are lowering themselves by 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 listening and by taking responsibility and by serving. And um, and I hope you see that this is this picture that we're giving is is deeply countercultural. It, it affirms nothing that our culture says. It's also not this is not a traditional marriage um, in, in any regard. Um, tra- this is this is very different. This is um, the gospel being lived out by two human beings, in flesh and blood. Um, but there's one thing I, I want to I point out, and I know I have a lot to say on this, but um, it, it's not only that the commands to submit and to love are a picture of the gospel, but um, submission and love are the very things that we need as spouses. A husband needs a wife to respect him, and a wife needs a husband who loves her. And I, I put this quote for you um, uh, on page three of your bulletin. It's a, little, it's a little long, but its it's been a valuable quote for me that I've used in premarital counseling uh, a number of times. And this is what it says this is by Doug Wilson. When a man is communicating his love for his wife, both verbally and non verbally, he should be seeking to communicate to her the security provided by his covenantal commitment. He's providing security. When a husband loves his wife, he's saying to her, security. Um, He will provide for her, he will nourish and cherish her, he will sacrifice for her, and so forth. Her need is to be secure in his love for her. Her need is to receive love from him. When a wife is respecting, but when a wife is respecting and honoring her husband, the transaction is quite different. Instead of concentrating on the security of the relationship, respect is Directed at his abilities and achievements, how hard he works, how faithfully he comes home, how patient he is with the kids, and so forth. The specifics may cause problems with some because she thinks he might not come home and she thinks he doesn't work nearly hard enough. But love is to be rendered to wives and respect to husbands because God has required it, and not because any husband or wife has earned it. You hear that? not because any of us has earned it. It is good for us to remember that God requires our spouses to render to us far more than any of us deserve. We don't deserve what God is demanding our spouses to give to us. And that's the gospel. And we'll only get that if, if the gospel is at, our, at, at the heart uh, of what, we, what we're what we doing as a marriage. But what all this says, the big message of all this is that, that the uh, marriage is not an end in and of itself. It is something that points to something bigger. And this is my third point that I'm just going to spend a few minutes on. Is that the third thing that this passage highlights is that the gospel is also the fulfillment of marriage. And um, what that means is that marriage um, is a good thing, but marriage is not the ultimate thing. And, you know, for many of us, we think about what we could get out of marriage. We can get companionship and, and vulnerability and we could get security and uh, we get friendship and uh, we get an expanding family and opportunities. And we say, and many of us think, if I just had those things, then um, I would have joy and my life would be complete. And you can think that whether you're, you have a healthy marriage and whether you have a marriage that's in a lot of trouble right now or if you're not married. You can put all kinds of hope that, that marriage could complete life, my life and fulfill me. Um, But the truth is that marriage is a good thing, but if you put everything into marriage and say, that is the thing that will give me a a, a complete life, marriage will fail you. It can't give you what you're longing for because marriage wants to point beyond itself. Marriage says, don't hope in me, look beyond me. And uh, this is exactly, just to read this verse again, um, in verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the truth. That marriage is supposed to point beyond itself. And all the things that we're longing for, that we're hoping for in marriage, someone that knows us, the pleasure of marriage, the companionship, the intimacy, the closure, all of these things, you only get a taste of in marriage. And so whether you're married or not, All those longings that marriage stirs in us is is just preparing us for the great marriage that is coming. where Jesus is the great husband, the one that we all long for. And the intimacy and all the ways that our marriages fail and all the, the ways that we have more out of our marriage, we will have what we long for when he returns and we see him face to face. And we will know him as we too are known. And so the ultimate picture of marriage is that the Lord is our husband. And everything that we're longing for, even the best marriage, is pointing us to that fulfillment as we look forward to that day. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we thank you for your word, many mysteries here, many challenges uh, that you call us to. Help bring our hearts to start with the gospel, what Christ has done for us. That you would prepare us to face our spouses. And also that you would stir in us a longing For the the marriage feast of the Lamb, when Christ comes again, we thank you for the blessing of marriage. I pray that you'd use these sermons and the scriptures that we've looked at to shape the marriages here, that um, the marriages in our church would be a picture of the gospel and would bring you glory. We ask in Christ.